Today we're doing something a little bit different. The fellow we have on here is was an American Army Ranger. He's also in the Special Forces, a Special Forces Engineer, which is the bomb diffuser guy. Then he became a medical surgeon, so a medic in Canadian terms. Then the guy decided, you know, I need more challenges in my life. So he went on to medical school and became a medical doctor um, specializing in trauma medicine. You may have seen this guy on TV in the show Hunting Hitler on the History Channel. He also has his own podcast, Mind of the Warrior. On the show today, we have Dr. Mike Simpson. At Operation Tango Romeo, we are on a mission to save lives and relieve pain by making peer support for post-traumatic stress disorder easily accessible with a vision of a world where finding help and support is simple and the path to recovery is clear. I am your OPSO, Mark Meinke, and this is Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast. And we're rolling in three, two, one. Today on the show, I am pleased to have Dr. Mike Simpson. Doc, thanks for being here, brother. Thanks for having me, brother. I really appreciate it. Yeah, you betcha. You are one hell of an interesting dude. The um, <laughs> uh, the dichotomy, the, the way that you've uh, done your career <laughs> from a high-speed, low-drag killing machine to a medic to um, or a medical sergeant what the hell is a medical sergeant anyway in the states yeah so it's uh in uh, in special forces they don't call it they don't call you an sf medic oh that's although colloquially a lot of people actually say that they say sf medical sergeant to make the differentiation that it's uh every slot on the team originally when an a team was created back in the 60s they had the medical specialist and the medical sergeant to differentiate who was in charge. Now they just call us all the medical sergeant because because pretty much nobody's on a team uh, below the level of Sergeant E5 anyway. So they call it the Special Forces Medical Sergeant's course. Uh, you know, there's not two different courses. So you're the SF medic, uh, but you're also the SF medical sergeant is kind of the formal term. So you're still fighting, but uh, uh, when, when somebody catches some shrap, you're in there patching them up. Yeah, exactly. So uh, the tr- traditionally, until GWAT, they didn't really have an adequate uh, grasp on it. Um, but uh, once GWAT kicked off and they figured out what we knew in SF all along, which was essentially everybody on the team is an operator until somebody gets injured. Yeah. Um, so which is, which is why everybody who's an 18 series MOS which is special forces <clears throat> gets a combat infantryman's badge. Uh, the medic can get uh, a combat medic medic badge, which is what I have because I got it as a physician. Uh, if he if he so chooses to pursue that route, but uh, you know, for being in combat, otherwise, uh, that's you know, the whole team would get CIVs, and then the, the medic uh, could get a CMB. Um, but they recognize now, as really it has always has been, that everybody's an operator up, up and until the moment that somebody gets hurt. It's rare in our regiment, uh, the Patricias, but uh, the occasional guy ends up doing cross-training down in, in the States and gets Ranger qualified. 
It's mm-hmm. rare, but I know a couple of them. Uh, yeah. Really rare. Have you? Did you ever serve with any Canadians when you're in the Rangers? I never. Uh, well, I served with a Canadian expat who enlisted uh, in the U.S. Army. Um, I don't. Never did an exchange with any Canadians, and I don't recall ever being in any schools with Canadians. We might. We might have had someone I was in airborne school because we had a we had a lot of allied troops when i was in airborne school and at that time i didn't know how to identify everybody's uniforms um deployed uh, i worked with uh, some australians some poles some italians uh some norwegians germans uh there were some canadians on mezzi sharif when i was there um didn't do any direct combat missions with them though. okay now, the um, reason that I originally reached out to you, I was t- talking to you off air, is I, I thought you had uh, you were in the world of medical trauma, as in uh, uh, PTSD. But no, uh, you're, <laughs> you're, you're a medical doctor. Now, that is an interesting thing, to go from the guy that's uh, putting holes in him to the guy that's patching him up. What was the impetus for that for you, Mike? So uh, actually the impetus, I was actually just talking about this the other day. So my initial impetus uh, to become a medic was probably not the best reason to do so. I was a, I was a special forces demolition sergeant at the time. So I was, I I was, I was blowing stuff up primarily. Yeah. Uh, And, and I was bored and I wanted to get away from Fort Bragg for a while. I just, uh, I was going through some stuff on a personal level and I just didn't want to be around Fort Bragg. Um, and at the time, the medic on my team had been kind of pursuing me for quite some time is, you know what, you really need to go to the medic course. You kind of, you, you have a keen interest for this. You have an analytical mind. I think you would do real well. Um, and I decided, you know what, this is a, this is a way that I can do something a little bit different because I was honestly, I was getting a little bit bored in my current job. Uh, and I can get away from Fort Bragg, uh, get my head together and, and then come back to group. And I did. And then I found out that I really enjoyed medicine. I really enjoyed the medical aspect of it. I really enjoyed combat trauma. Uh, I liked being a problem solver when it came to medical things. Um, Got to do a lot as a medic, got to treat battlefield trauma uh, when I was in Bolivia multiple times, um, redeploying multiple times in the the war on drugs uh, and working in that capacity as a medic and even teaching uh, a 10 week medic course uh, to the Colombian uh, counter narcotics battalion medics, all really, really, really rewarding. But I realized kind of early on that not only did I like medicine and have an aptitude for it, but when I looked around, uh, I'm only five foot six. Uh, keeping up physically in the Rangers and SF was always a little bit of a challenge for me. I think uh, a lot of people probably had a little bit, a uh, little bit more genetic gifts when it came to athleticism. And that was always something I had to overcome. I never fell behind. I was never the weakest link, uh, but it always took just a little bit more effort for me. Um, I could outshoot a lot of people, couldn't outrun a lot of people, couldn't outlift or outclimb a lot of people. And I didn't see my way ahead as being in a leadership role on a team, although I did get to deploy once as a team sergeant. I, I didn't see that as being a really good fit for me. And I've always been uh, of the belief that whatever it is that you're really good at, uh, Number one, it's going to be more rewarding for you. So you're going to get more job satisfaction. So you're never really going to feel like you're going to work. And number two, especially when we're talking about a military unit, you kind of have an obligation to do what you're best at because somebody, otherwise somebody else might end up doing the job 
and they're not the best person for the job. So I knew I was never going to be the best sniper, never going to be the best breacher, the best shooter. Uh, but I could be the best at providing expert medical care, expert trauma care. So I chose to, to pursue going to medical school with the goal all the time that I was going to become an emergency medicine physician specifically so that I could come back to the soft community and provide that care where it was needed at the tip of the spear. One thing I'm curious to ask you, and I didn't prepare you for it uh, off air, um, and I'm really curious about what your, what your answer is going to be. I see a lot of guys that even going from Army to Air Force, the transition is a son of a bitch. Because um, yeah. they're like, oh my God, we just went from super high discipline, life or death stuff to the uh, the junior ranks are being lippy with the people two, three ranks <laughs> higher than them. Right. What's God right. going to lose my mind? And uh, the former armor guys walking around wanting to throat chop everybody all the time because why are you doing it this way? Where's your discipline? Where's your esprit de corps? Uh, now, I would imagine being a high-speed, low-drag op- operator, I mean, that's, a, that, that's tier one shit. Doing transitioning into the medical community uh, has that been a similar challenge for you are you uh, a bit of an odd duck yeah it, it was a little bit of a challenge i had i had the advantage and i attended the uniform services university of the health sciences which is exactly what it sounds like it is a uniformed medical school so this is you know just as we have uh the, the united states military academy at west point the united states naval academy at annapolis maryland uh, and of course, the Air Force Academy in Colorado. The USIS is you would consider it a military academy to produce doctors. So um, you know everybody already has their undergraduate degree, their pre-med uh, prerequisites out of the way, uh, but you're there to become a military doctor. So it's it's a very it's it's very military bent uh, when you're going to it, and it has the advantage of I had classmates, uh, I had two classmates who were also former SF medics. I had multiple classmates who had been infantry, uh, who had been in ranger units. Uh, I had, uh, uh, there was a PJ in the class ahead of me, a reconnaissance uh, Marine in the class ahead of me. So we still kind of had that, that, that kinship and kind of an outlet uh, to definitely kind of, you know, have a springboard off one another on how different it was. But they kind of give you a little bit of free reign at USIS and they recognize that if you come from a prior service background, number one, they expect you to kind of be a leadership and kind of corral all these other second lieutenants. But they also recognize just that, that you're, you're going to be kind of that odd duck. You're going to be a little bit different. And they give you a little bit of free reign for that. Um, and it's an academic setting. So because it's an academic setting, you're able to kind of disconnect and not think of it as this is a military unit and that's why things are different. You can think of it as this is an academic setting, although it's still a little bit of a shift. It wasn't until residency that I really got exposed to what we call the AMED mentality, which is not a good thing. That's not a compliment. So Army Medical Command is notorious for being not the best, not kind of a second rate military unit and also a second mate rate medical system at the same time. And that sounds terrible, probably sounds much more terrible than it is, (laughs) but in a sense, it's true. Uh, You know, I'm not saying that military medicine is horrific, it's outstanding, uh, but just the way that it operates, not not on a care care delivery level, it's wonderful. On an administration level, it is a nightmare. 
uh, because it can't quite decide, are we a hospital system or are we a military unit or are we a mixture of both? Um, and so you see just that. And during residency, I saw people who were wearing, you know, much higher rank than myself, uh, you know, 05 and 06, Lieutenant Colonel and Colonel, who wouldn't have lasted three days in any of the units that I had been in, you know, who were all about themselves, not about the unit as a whole, uh, very self-serving, not much on maintaining standards, you know, overweight, sloppy uniform, uh, not on time, uh, you know, not about what's the bigger picture. And it really bothered me. And, it, and I, I won't say that I felt alone in that because we had a lot of prior service in my residency class. And even, again, we had a couple more former SF guys in my residency class. Uh, but that really concerned me that this is, this is what the future might hold for me. Uh, what, what ended up dawn, finally dawning on me that I wasn't the one who was wrong and I wasn't the one that had to adjust was when ultimately when I interviewed for my post-residency job with the Joint Special Operations Command to get into the Joint Medical Augmentation Unit or JMAO, I was asked in the course of that interview by the, by the unit commander, what's the worst unit you've ever been in? And I said, it's the unit that I'm in right now. And, and <laughs> not the question, a, not the answer they were hoping for. Well, actually, that as soon as I said it, I thought, oh, my gosh, I've made a mistake. Because knowing full <laughs> well that the unit commander knows a lot of the people who are my, uh, are my attendings or my, and my staff and residency. But it was like a switch flipped in my head. And I said, here's the problems that I have with AMED. And here's the problems I have, I have with the residency program. And I just went on a, on a list of, you know, people want to feather their own nest, not do what's right for the unit. People are dodging deployment. People are seeking jobs that look good on their resume instead of jobs that can best serve the military and, and the fighting force. And I have a problem with all that. And I kind of, I won't, it's almost like that scene in, uh, in Back to School where Will Farrow says, I blacked out for a moment there, you know, while he went on a rant. I, I kind of did that. And when I came to, the unit commander was smiling and nodding. And he said, that was exactly my assessment when I was a resident as well. <laughs> uh, and I got so it la landed well, you ducked the bullet. Yeah, it, la it landed well because it's, uh, you know, it's uh, MedCom units, AMED units are not at all like the operational military. And uh, it's, uh, it, it's something that's been talked about in the military quite a bit. Is it, is it, is it functional in, in its current form? Yes. Is it, uh, you know, to me, is it a good example of what the military is? No, it's absolutely, absolutely is not. Um, and again, that's not to say that they don't deliver great patient care because they do. Um, it's just, uh, there, there's some, there's some problems there. And I didn't, I, I don't see, again, I go back to my initial statement is it's a kind of a poor representation of what a hospital system should look like administratively. Uh, and a poor representation of what a military unit should look like as far as selfless service uh, and mission accomplishment. You have such a wide range of training. It's uh, extremely rare that an infantry guy, the, the high-speed, low-drag killer guy, goes all the way to a uh, medical doctor. Um, during all that training, I mean, you've got the full gabbit. You've got a ridiculous amount of scope with, uh, within your training. Was there any talk about mental health, PTSD, resiliency, or the signs to, to spot with your team members? Uh, was, was there anything then, and is there anything now? So when, when I went through the, the SF Medic course, uh, there was not. It was, you know, we were trauma dogs, and that's what we did. 
uh, you know, and, and also uh, a lot of austere medicine and kind of tropical medicine, uh, you know, di diagnosing stuff on the fly and kind of some of the weird diseases we might see. It wasn't until I was in medical school that I really started to see that. And I think that was something that was very well integrated into my curriculum at the Uniformed Services University. It's uh, at, at the end of uh, your academic time, uh, right before you start your fourth year, you do uh, a large scale field exercise. And in that large scale field exercise, one of the things that you're doing is uh, specifically running uh, kind of a behavioral health cell in the middle of what's supposed to be an extended battlefield. So you're dealing with, with troops who are coming in uh, with issue, issues from, from what they're going through or issues that they, they brought to the table already just manifesting in that, in that setting. Um, and I thought, the, I thought the, the curriculum there did an excellent job of addressing it and kind of preparing me for that. And of course, I had you know, all the, the, the regular you know, psychological psych rotations that, uh, that all med students have my third year. And this, since this was the height of the war, at that time, you know, this was uh, 2004, 2005 timeframe. Um, this was a Tripler hospital and we had troops on, on the inpatient ward and, and seeing clinically outpatient who were there specifically because of what had happened to them in theater and how that was mani manifesting psychologically. So going forward from that, I think, you know, because of the specific education that I had at, at USIS and the specific rotations I had at military hospitals, um, I think I was well armed for that going forward. And, you know, and through my multiple deployments, um, it was something that I always had in my toolkit uh, for the times that it was needed, as well as when I practiced in emergency medicine uh, in, in an ER uh, stateside, both at, at Womack Army Medical Center and at uh, Carl R. R. Darnell Army Medical Center uh, at Fort Hood. A few episodes ago, I had a lady on the show, uh, Lisa Sabatini, and she was the spouse of, of a Canadian soldier. Uh, he was active serving at the time. Marriage didn't work out, but the stress, the secondary trauma that she received from, from living with a guy uh, really suffering from PTSD was so hard on her that the physical symptoms that she experienced included paralysis. She was <laughs> physically paralyzed in a hospital bed from anxiety, like unbelievable. And uh, as a medical doctor, I was wondering if you could speak to the link between mental health and physical health. Uh, absolutely. So there's a huge link and it, and it goes both ways. It, it really does. The two-way so, link, yeah. Yeah, we, we know that, uh, that people in the height of physical fitness, when they are faced with psychological trauma and psychological stress, are better equipped to deal with it. You know, we, we are organic beings. And, uh, you know, whether, regardless of how you identify what, what some call the ghost in the machine, you know, your psyche, you know, the, the id, the ego and the super ego, however you want to break it down. Uh, at the end of the day, uh, this, this can be identified, we know, through spec, spec scans and MRIs and everything else by, you know, by biological mechanisms. So uh, the things that you are feeling are uh, when you're subjected to psychological stress and trauma, uh, those travel by biological pathways. Now, un unfortunately, kind of the answer to that has become 
uh, biochemical in the form of, you know, let's treat things, you know, pharmacologically, because this is all just a chemical imbalance. Well, it isn't that simple either. You know, it's, it goes both ways. Um, it's very, when, when you are physically, when you are psychologically stressed or exposed to extreme psychological trauma, it's only natural for your body to manifest that in, in physical ways, right? And um, it, one of the most common things that we talk about this all the time is, is that at a young age, oftentimes children will, mani will manifest psychological stress or fear in the form of abdominal pain, right? Mm -hmm. I have a tummy ache. I don't wanna go to school, I have a tummy ache. They're not lying about that tummy ache to not go to school they're actually having physical pain, right? They're, they're feeling that, they're experiencing that in real time because their, their brain is telling them through perception that there's a situation they want to avoid and that is uncomfortable. And it is telling them as they approach that through physical discomfort, that that's a situation that they don't wanna be in. And, and, that's, and their, body, their body and brain are interpreting it in that fashion. So, you know, uh, physical manifestations of psychological stress, whether through the extreme of what we call conversion disorder, where people actually can exhibit, like you said, paralysis, stroke symptoms, uh, you know, pseudo seizures, things of that nature. Um, that's kind of the extreme edge of it. But it, basically what it is, is, is you are mentally and psychologically having a difficult time coping, and that is manifesting in physical forms. I remember even in basic training. Um, so in the Canadian system, everybody goes through basic. It doesn't matter if you're the cook or the, or the combat guy, everybody does their 10 weeks of basic, basically how to salute and polish your boots, you know? <laughs> so not, not a lot to it. Uh, just acclimatizing yourself to the military environment, not hardcore at all. Um, but even with that, because it's such a big transition from civilian life, uh, there were people who one fella, his spine just twisted right up and uh, he, he couldn't move. Now he, was, he, was, he was physically crippled um, because of his spine, not because of the training or anything that we were doing. It was the stress and the anxiety. And, and that was it for him. Uh, how it manifested right to his spinal cord, that was it. Um, now, I have said repeatedly uh, at our peer support groups and on this show that Trauma recovery is an activity, not an event. It's not something that you wait for. It's something that you've got to earn. It's something similar to even on one of your t-shirts I was, I was coveting as I was checking out your apparel uh, page there. But um, you've got to do the work. Now, uh, you have stayed fit, uh, really involved in mixed martial arts, uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, how important is, is that, is uh, strenuous activity to mental health? Strenuous activity uh, is supremely important, in my opinion, to mental health. Um, number one, it's an incredible stress outlet. Uh, number two, it, it increases your, uh, your endurance, both physically and psychologically. Um, it continues to uh, add to what I call your neuroplasticity. So your ability to cope with things under stressful situations. Um, and, and we know this both pre and post. So again, going, going, into, going into combat, uh, people that were more physically fit tend to deal with traumatic events 
in in somewhat easier fashion because not only because they were uh, you know obviously for obvious reasons their survivability was probably increased right but but also the fact that uh, they just had more overall resilience you know the talking about the ghost of the machine again you know your your brain is the driver and this is the machine that it's driving so if you want your brain to be able to negotiate traffic you have to tune up that vehicle and the vehicle has to be in in proper running order or it doesn't matter what the driver does the vehicle is not going to respond and that's going to you know imagine driving a car that has not had its oil changed and is on three flat tires and then trying to negotiate uh, an accident at high speeds it's going to be much more difficult so who's going to feel that stress is you're going to feel that stress as the driver because oh my god i'm trying to turn and veer out of the way and and the vehicle is just not responding um all of these things work together in close conjunction and then moving forward afterwards the more time that you have to just uh sit and think about how frustrated you are how anxious you are um, that just continues to feed into that loop. If you are using something as an outlet for that stress and anxiety, you know, you're, you're working it off, walking it off, as your coach used to say, then you're, you're burning, you're basically burning that out of your system in a constructive way. Okay. You, you also start to anchor a little bit more, uh, you know, the, the pleasure centers of your brain start to associate that exercise with relief of that anxiety. And the exercise becomes more and more enjoyable as you move forward. So, you know, unlike trying to numb it with drugs, trying to numb it with alcohol, all you're really doing in those cases is putting a very toxic pause button on whatever it is that you're dealing with. If you allow it, if you allow those feelings to kind of flow through you and channel them through Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, through boxing, uh, through CrossFit, whatever it might be. You're, you're allowing that energy to be expended in a constructive manner <clears throat> and you're building stronger associations through those neuronal pathways uh, in your nervous system. Part of the uh, challenge to a healthy lifestyle is some of the military culture, especially the drinking culture. And sure. you hear people joke around, it's like, well, a bottle of Jack Daniels is my therapist, you know, and um, that is so dangerous because it does the exact yeah. opposite of helping. You know, it may feel like coping, but it's actually not. It's making, yeah. it compounds the problem so much. And uh, when it's just part of the culture with uh, the drinking games and the toasting and everything else, it uh, it just spirals out of control sometimes. Uh, the, yeah, the alcoholism really alcoholism in uh, first responder and veteran community is, is rampant for largely because of that as well. It's part yeah. of the... Uh, the, the the id you know it's like i i am warrior part of being warrior is mead and whiskey yeah. <laughs> yeah. and uh although i i i haven't had a drink since april uh april 16th and i yeah. do miss a little bit of whiskey it's it, it's yeah. true but uh, i i know i can't do it it's uh it, part of the recovery gotta stay yeah. clean yeah i you know i i drink three fingers of bourbon every sunday with a cigar in the back porch and uh, just enough to kind of feel warm. And, and honestly, I like the taste of it, especially with a cigar. Yeah. Uh, I've got a six pack of non-alcoholic beer in my fridge right now because a company approached me about, about uh, affiliating with them on my podcast. And 
never been a fan of non-alcoholic beer, but I like the way it tastes. And I, I'll come home from a hard day's work or a hard day at the gym and I'll crack one of those open uh, knowing that uh, I'm not going to get tipsy and I'm also not going to be then running to the bathroom all night long because when you're my age, if you have a beer right before bed, that means you know six or seven trips to the bathroom. Um, but yeah, I agree. I don't, I've never numbed with alcohol. I keep minimal alcohol in the house. Uh, uh, alcoholism runs in both sides of my family very, very strongly, but it's never, and, and yeah, I did a lot of crazy junior enlisted drinking in my young days because that's how <laughs> we pursued our off time. Yeah. But I've never gone to it, uh, at least that I can remember as an outlet because of, de of depression in life or, you know, difficulty coping or anything like that. And it's, it's certainly not the answer. And like you, like you say, you know, I, I call it the toxic pause button because you feel like you got to kind of skip over, uh, you know, six to eight hours because, you know, because you, you changed your brain neurochemically, but really what you did is, you know, you, let's say you on a scale of zero to a hundred of, of what you're dealing with, you entered that six to eight hours at an 83 and you came out on the other side, probably in 85 or 86. Okay. During that six to eight hours, you felt like you kind of dropped down to a 50. Although everybody who was around you felt like you were at a 98. Right? <laughs> yeah, this, you just kind of what you think is over. extreme is just my operating level. <laughs> yeah. You know, and that's, that's the excuse that we use. Right. Yeah. And I do know guys who, uh, who have gone to, gone to alcohol to kind of numb things and, and used it as used it for pain control, used it uh, to blunt uh, emotional pain as well, used it as a sleep aid. And these are all 100% the wrong answer. Sleep aid is one of the most dangerous ones. And I so understand yeah. it. Uh, I've been desperate for years to get a good night's sleep. And it's one of the most common most common uh, issues with uh, soldiers and first responders is yeah. not getting a good night's sleep. Um, uh, sometimes the nightmares are so terrible. I'm, I'm, I'm wake up in, uh, in a jolt two, three, four times a night. And for some people, the only way that they've found anyway is through drinking, drinking their face mm -hmm. off, drinking until they black out because they are yeah. that desperate for a good night's sleep and to be nightmare free for, for a night. And, yeah. um, <laughs> that's that's almost an instant problem like uh, instant alcoholic if you're using it as a as a coping strategy because it's not a strategy Absolutely. at all no. i saw on your website um you promote the keto diet now as a medical doctor i find that interesting because yeah. i uh, there's uh there I, I there's some, I i've been on it and i think it's great but yeah. uh you do have one as an advertiser yeah yeah i do yeah so i i have partnered with some you know i, I partnered with f-bomb I don't, uh, and I actually ha haven't promoted them for a while, so I should probably take that off just because I'm not giving them the business that they expect. Um, I'm not an advocate for, I, you know, I, I, I don't go around preaching the keto diet saying that everybody should be on the keto diet. Um, I have been on uh, keto programs for periods of time in which it, it helped me with some issues, <clears throat> helped get my sugar under control. Um, helped me, uh, you know, it, I lost 30 pounds doing keto over the period of about three months and, and came out the other end much, much, much healthier. Um, I don't, uh, I try, although I try to get away from fad dieting, crash dieting, things of that nature, I do think that everyone can benefit from not necessarily 
necessarily keto, but from kind of cleaning up their bad carbs, um, you know, and, and li limiting your carbohydrate intake. And when you do intake carbs, they're of the healthy variety, right? So, so broccoli, as opposed to uh, bread, you know, mm -hmm. things, things of that nature. And I tell people that, you know, if they're having, I'm having trouble with my weight, I'm having trouble with my blood sugar. I say, well, you know what, get, get rid of potatoes, bread, and pasta. And I'm not telling you to go keto. I'm just saying, get rid of potatoes, bread, and pasta. Yeah. And I am an advocate for, you know, I think we need healthy fats in our diet. And that's, and that's why I associated with F-bomb. You know, I, I like to eat, um, when I was uh, on the cadre for Sheepdog Response, um, it, this was pretty common uh, amongst us uh, as, a, as a company when we were off doing remote training is we would have uh, a big thing of eggs in the morning with, with bacon, because we all love bacon, but also with a lot of chopped avocado to get that healthy fat because we were going right from there to then go grapple for four hours and then going right from there to go to shoot for four hours. So you do need healthy fats for fuel and you don't want to, you don't want to do that with donuts, right. And get a sugar rush and then, you know, you know, burn those off in an hour. Yeah. Big Macs don't is, quite cut it. Yeah. Big Macs don't quite cut it, but healthy fats are a good thing. And I think, you know, there's, I, I, uh, since the time that I did a couple episodes on keto, I've kind of come a little bit, I, I've taken a little bit of a step away from that. I still think keto has a place and for some people it's a great thing to do, but I don't, uh, moving forward and I'm going to be writing a book soon. I'm not going to, I don't push exclusionary diets and keto is certainly an exclusionary diet. It's okay to be ketotic. I think for periods of time, um, recognizing that it's, it's, uh, you know, we're, we're omnivores. So, mm -hmm. you know, I, I don't, I'm not a huge fan of the carnivore diet. I'm not a, I'm not a fan of, actually, I would say at all of the carnivore diet, nor am I a fan of vegan diets. Um, you know, it's something that's kind of quasi paleo, uh, where you kind of dip in and out of ketogenesis. But, you know, when I see these guys and, you know, I've, I've gone to these health conferences and fitness conferences and, and, uh, there's a, actually an event called KetoCon. but, you know, go to these guys, I've been in, in ketosis for 15 years. It's like, I, you know, I don't know if that's necessarily where you want to be. You know, it's, it, I try to keep my carbohydrate in, intake on the low side. And, uh, if I'm doing a strength day and I come back and I do a urine dipstick, I probably won't be in ketosis. If I do, uh, what I did last night, which was two and a half hours of jujitsu, I was probably a little bit in ketosis when I went to bed last night, just because I limit my carb intake to a certain extent. Did you notice a difference in mental clarity while, while you were on keto? Yeah, I actually, so initially you feel a little bit scattered, but then as you come through that, you actually start to feel very focused mm -hmm. and it's, I don't, at least that's how it was for me. I think that's not necessarily ketogenesis. That's doing that. I think it's the uh, most exclusionary diets. The reason that, that people feel great and the reason they lose weight is because they've eliminated some of the crap. So I think the, the mental clarity, I think was a secondary effect of not having processed sugars and not having, you know, uh, you know, bread and gluten and a lot of other things that that will slow you down and give you that fog. Um, I don't think it was was directly related to the ketogenesis. Although some people who are proponents of the keto diet have uh, have made that 
claim. Whether it was um, direct or indirect, I certainly noticed the mental clarity yeah. when I did it. And, yeah. and much like yourself, I did uh, a couple of months, lost 20 pounds, just like that. But what I found is it was just so heavy of a diet and expensive. Holy shit. You know, yeah. it's, it's not cheap. But um, the, it was so heavy of a diet that although it was delicious and I enjoyed it and I felt good on it and I was skinnier, um, it just was not sustainable. It was such a heavy diet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's you, you're eating a lot and it's and you're eating, you know, it's like I'm hungry. You know, what are my keto options here? You know, it's uh, and, and your your options become pretty significantly narrowed because Whereas typically, you know, you go, I'm hungry. I want a couple of crackers and cheese. No, like, well, I can only have the cheese, you know, or I can only have some, you know, some, some sliced Turkey or whatever that might be. So, yeah, like you say, it ends up, and that's, again, that's, that's one of the reasons that you lose weight on it is because you're, you're like, well, my, where, where my options are, I don't feel that I can eat as much. So your caloric intake changes as well. We know that ketogenesis uh, is highly used for, for some people with refractory seizure disorders. So we, we do know that it has a direct impact on the, on the biochemistry of the central nervous system. So, you know, could, e- even though I've said, I don't think that's the direct reason you get that mental clarity. Um, I think these, that's where those, uh, those claims tend to come from. And it, it's possible because I'm not, I'm not a neuroscientist, uh, and I'm not a nutritionist. You know, I, I know from what I've read and what I've experienced myself. Are you familiar with Dr. Jordan Peterson? I am familiar with Dr. Peterson. And of course, he's an advocate now. I don't know if he still is or was of the carnivore diet. Yes, he's an Alberta boy like I am. He's from a yeah. small town, Valley View, uh, northern Alberta. And he genetically uh, linked, uh, has suffered from depression for, for a great long yeah. time, as has his, uh, his daughter. And they have both found respite with um, uh, a great relief with the carnivore diet. And if they stray from it, the symptoms are back hardcore. So different strokes, different folks, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, we're, we're not all the same. I mean, we're, you know, depending on, on where we, where we came from, uh, where our ancestors came from and, you know, where we are both genotypically and phenotypically, it's, there's going to be some differences there. So certainly there are some people like, like I know, you know, getting back to ketogenesis and ketosis, I'm somebody who can shift in it into it very, very easily. You know, the first time that I did it, I was making ketones uh, on day two. And mm-hmm. the guy who was supervising the diet for me said, that's impossible. You got to be, you know, it's 10 days. I've never had anybody make ketones, uh, before 10 days. And I'm like, I'm making ketones on day two. So I'm somebody who kind of readily shifts into that. Uh, everybody, you know, some people are more gluten sensitive than others. Some people are more prone. You know, we, we know that type two diabetes, uh, has a very strong tie to, to genetics and is, is more strongly represented in some, uh, demographic groups. So, everybody's going to be a little bit different. And, you know, although, I, although I tell people to, as a whole, you should probably avoid, uh, exclusionary diets. You know, that I think most people who are on the carnivore diet, if they added something like spinach to that diet, I think they would, you know, not, not a more high level sugar, you know, not even talking about apples, but, you know, something as simple, uh, as spinach or kale or something of that nature, 
I think they would find that they still feel great. Uh, and that would also help balance them out, you know, when it comes to vitamins, when it comes to roughage and things of that nature. Absolutely. I wanted to uh, wrap up with you by talking about the sheepdog response. Uh, what is it and what was your involvement? So I, I was medical training director of Sheepdog Response. It's a company that was founded and is run by a close friend of mine, uh, Tim Kennedy, former UFC fighter, uh, ranger, uh, SF sniper, um, somebody that I also worked with, of course, on Hunting Hitler, which is where no, most people, I think, know us from. Um, Sheepdog Response is an organization that is geared towards providing uh, everyday people with the tools they need to survive in this world when it comes to personal defense. So both that's uh, armed and unarmed combat. So fighting as well as shooting, situational awareness, learning how to look for key indicators that you might be in a place you shouldn't be in, or that might be a person who looks to do you harm. Uh, everything from setting up your home, setting up your car, setting up a proper first aid kit that isn't just for putting band-aids on scratches, but actually for saving a life. And that was my role as medical director was to teach uh, a, a trauma course uh, for everyday people, how to put on a tourniquet, how to put on a vented chest seal, how to do a proper patient assessment, how to triage people and everything of that nature. The company is still out there. I'm not with them any longer, but we still have a close relationship. In fact, I was at the range with them last week uh, out there shooting and I, and and had the opportunity to, to be the one to teach a hip pocket class and in, in tourniquets for all the attendees there. Um, company continues to do just great and amazing things. And, and I tell people all the time, if, if, you were, if you have the means and the time, you should definitely avail yourself of one of their courses. They also teach courses for, for law enforcement as well. But I think where they do the, the most and make the most impact <clears throat> is, is in the people who've never served in the military and this is all new to them and they know nothing about fighting, nothing about shooting. And they go in there, they don't walk out as experts after two days, but they, they walk out with a solid foundation and awareness of what they need to do moving forward to be prepared if they encounter one of these situations. Roger that. And if anybody listening wants a kick-ass uh, first aid kit, check out Mike's website. And I will have backlinks uh, to uh, Dr. Simpson's website and some of the cool stuff that he has on this episode check out the t-shirts they're freaking great <laughs> my i think my personal uh favorite is the one with the unicorn on the front that says fix bayonets love it yeah that's that's from the ranger up guy so that's not in my line but that is who sells my t-shirts and that's that's one of my favorites as well in fact i think i have one of those sitting around here somewhere. <laughs> so good i think it's my new obsession i'm gonna have to start a collection of those i've already shared a link to that on all my channels Dr. Michael Simpson, thank you so much for being on Operation Tango Thanks Romeo for, today. Thanks for having me, brother. I really appreciate it. 100%. Today's episode of Operation Tango Romeo is brought to you by our wonderful sponsor, the Vancouver Island Works Project. Vancouver Island Works Project. They are providing us at Operation Tango Romeo with a premium website. They're building it for us, populating it. They're looking after everything that I don't know how to do. If you are looking for a website for yourself, please check out the Vancouver Island Works Project, viwproject.com. That's Victor India Whiskey Project.com. Now they do a lot more than just websites. They do a whole bunch. Please check out their services on the service tab on their website at viwproject.com. Accounting, bookkeeping, uh, Microsoft and Adobe training, 
social media management, you name it. Now, the website is that they're building for us is just under construction right now. It'll be up and running probably in a few weeks. There'll be a big announcement about that. But VancouverIslandWorksProject.com is supporting Tango Romeo. Thank you for that. Thank you, Manny Mandrusiak, who I served with. And please check them out, man. Check them out. Get a premium website for yourself. At Operation Tango Romeo, we are on a mission to save lives and relieve pain by making peer support for post-traumatic stress disorder easily accessible with a vision of a world where finding help and support is simple and the path to recovery is clear. I am your OPSO, Mark Meinke, and this is Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast. 